Constitutional Law today, we talked about some really interesting cases, uh, specifically one interesting case, but we also finished up our discussion on Federalist Number 10 and Federalist Number 51. I just want to sum those up before spending the vast majority of this time on Marbury versus Madison. So, Federalist Number 10, we talked about our factions and how a large republic is specifically designed to combat factions. And this was a different opinion than what was normally known at that time. But it made a lot of sense and ended up being a huge thing that Madison, that really made Madison famous for this theory of a large republic to combat factions. But Federalist number 51 ends up kind of building on this to address factions a little further. And one of the issues with factions is that you have a lot of ambition. But one of the things with having a large government is that ambition can counteract ambition. And you get that famous line there of how these factions can be countered. And Federalist number 51 talks about the separation of powers and checks and balances. So there are really two kinds of separation of powers. You first have vertical and then horizontal separation of powers. Vertical separation of powers simply refers to federalism. So if you think about it going uh, up and down vertical, uh, state courts on the bottom, federal courts on the top, they're separated in the sense of federal courts did their thing. Um, Sorry, not just courts, but governments, federal governments did their thing while state governments do their thing. So that's vertical. Then you have horizontal where you're thinking side to side and you're specifically looking at just the federal branches of government. And so you've got the judicial, you've got the executive, and you've got the legislative. And so these three branches of government have powers that are different, so separate. And the point of this is to provide checks and balances. Of course, there are powers that overlap, and it's important that they overlap just a bit so that these governmental powers can check other branches. Another interesting thing to note, though, just as a side note, is that the founders predicted that the legislative branch would actually be the strongest, powerful branch of government today. And there's a lot of debate on whether or not that's true. I mean, and why that wouldn't be true if that is the case today, that it's not the strongest branch of government anymore. And most people would argue that the executive branch is the strongest branch of government now. And the reason for that, they might say that the legislative branch left a lot of powers to be up for grabs. Um, That's just one way that people have thought about it. But that's finishing up our background on the Constitution and how that works. Let's go ahead and move now into the constitutional framework, how we interpret the Constitution. And we first start with judicial review. And this is Marbury versus Madison. Honestly, one of the most fascinating cases, interesting cases. Uh, it's a classic, obviously. I mean, it's cited a ton. And it's also one of the most controversial cases of the Supreme Court history. I obviously know that we have a lot of political issues today, but this case is still in debate on whether or not the courts got this right. So let's go over the background of the case. Who is Marbury? Who who is Madison? Uh, Where do they come from? What's their situation? Why is Marbury suing Madison? Well, Marbury was a person who was appointed to be a judge by John Adams' administration, John Adams. Adams was the second president of the United States. 
one of the roles of the president is to appoint judges, and Marbury was one of the judges who is being appointed. And we see the political battles at the time here, too. They're so interesting because Marbury was appointed at the end of the Adams administration. And why was that? Well, Adams was had just lost to Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson. And so he's trying to get as many judges in the court of the Federalist Party before he ends up leaving um, the presidency. So Marbury and others are appointed, uh, confirmed in the Senate, and a commission is written and signed to give them a portion, uh, to give them their appointments. The only issue was is that it wasn't delivered before the Adams administration left the office. And so Marbury's like, well, I want my commission. I want my job. I was appointed to it. He goes and asks Jefferson if he could have his commission. And Jefferson's secretary of state was Madison. And Madison uh, was told by Jefferson not to give him this commission. And so Marbury is going to the court, and importantly, he's going directly to the Supreme Court. He's not going to a trial court or a circuit court. He's going directly to the Supreme Court to have this issue resolved. And his basis for that was the Judicial Act of the time. And the Judicial Act said that he could be afforded a remedy through a certain document that he would have prepared to tell the, um, that the Supreme Court would have told Madison, you have to give up the commission. It's his property. So there's three questions here that the court's trying to answer. The first question is, does he have a right to the commission? Second, is his remedy a good remedy? And third, is his remedy something that this court, specifically the Supreme Court, can end up doing? So first, Marshall, which interestingly enough, he was the previous Secretary of State. So Marshall was the one who was, had appointed Marbury. Uh, Marshall is the Chief Justice writing this. He says and that Marbury does have a right to the commission. Second, the method of recovery or remedy that Marbury wants is a good remedy. However, this court does not have the authority to actually give him that remedy. And it's interesting, Marbury's reasoning, for, uh, not Marbury's, Marshall's reasoning for all of this. So yes, he's given the right, yes, he has a remedy, but the court does not have this remedy. In the judicial act that would pass, the Supreme Court would have had original jurisdiction, meaning the first one to hear the case. But in the Article 3 of the Constitution, it doesn't say anything about this specific remedy being underneath original jurisdiction for the Supreme Court. So you've got this original act of the Constitution, Article 3, saying one thing, and you've got this other statute, Judiciary Act, saying another thing. And so you've got this conflict, and Marshall's like, well, we want to preserve the Constitution. And so this other law is not good law. It's unconstitutional, and as a result, because you came to us first, you don't have the remedy that you are after. What this case determined, ultimately, is that we have judicial review. 
What is judicial review? It means that the court can decide what statutes are or are not constitutional. In other words, the court declares what the law is. So you have two big takeaways. First, the court gets to determine if the laws are constitutional. And second, those determinations are binding on all branches of government. Now, Marshall did provide reasons for this rule. First reason is that the Constitution is written down. And what he means by that is if we didn't write down the Constitution, well, then what was the point of enforcing it in the first place? Because it is written down, we enshrine this document as a governing body of law. Second, the court has a rule, a natural rule in hearing cases, meaning hearing specifically constitutional cases. If somebody has an issue with the statute, they go into the courts, and the courts resolve the issue. And so the courts are in a natural position to resolve all these issues. Third, because the Constitution is the supreme law of the land, the judicial branch should strive to preserve it, meaning since the judges are in this natural position, they should strive to preserve this supreme law. Additionally, he argues that the Constitution granted jurisdiction to handle these kind of cases. And finally, the justices have taken an oath to protect the Constitution. And so because of these five reasons, Marshall says we now have judicial review. And there's controversy here because, well, Marshall was the previous Secretary of State. He's now the judge writing this. Should he have recused himself from hearing this case? That's one argument against Marshall's uh, opinion here. Second opinion against this argument that Marshall presented is uh, that... Hold on, I just lost my train of thought. The second argument against Marshall's opinion here is that the statute didn't actually violate the Constitution. The words, the way the statute was written was in the appellate jurisdiction, this was a remedy, not the original jurisdiction. So ultimately, there was not actually a conflict. And so he could have just said, you don't have a right to sue in the original court. You did this wrong. I'm sorry, you don't have your thing. But instead, he ended up creating this judicial review. And third is really Marshall's reasoning. For example, justices have to take enough to protect the Constitution. All the other branches of governments have to take oaths to protect the Constitution. It's does the court actually have the authority to do these things? So big takeaway ultimately is that we do have judicial review. Uh, there's really nothing that we're going to do to change that, regardless of whether or not you approve or disapprove. I, can't, I, I don't know if I do have the feeling that judicial review is a good thing in the long run. I think it's been helpful. I think if and taking all these arguments together, it makes sense that it's up to the courts to handle judicial review, considering how so many other things have changed with the Constitution. But I think, ultimately, it was a good rule to have judicial review. I think eventually it would have happened, but it's interesting to see if it didn't happen in this case with Marbury versus Madison, how close it was to actually not happening here. Just interesting things to think about Marbury versus Madison constitutional framework of, first of all, judicial review, 
tomorrow we're going to be getting into another example of uh, judicial oversight that the courts have over states. And we may end up getting into other topics uh, such as originalism or textualism as well. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Law Schoolers. Before I let you go, there are four things I want to say. The first thing is if you enjoyed these episodes and if you enjoyed the website, I would invite you to go and join Law Schoolers Pro. And you can do that by going to lawschoolers.com slash join. It's a way for you to support us, but there's also a lot of features there that I think you will enjoy. Second thing is that nearly all of our episodes are unedited. The only ones that aren't are pre-law materials, and the reason for that is so you can actually see the legal material in its raw form as I'm learning it as well. The third thing is that the information contained in these episodes are specifically only for educational purposes. They're not to be used as legal advice. And with that, the fourth thing is if it is used as legal advice, we are not liable. That is, law schoolers is not liable for any legal outcomes. Thank you again for enjoying the show. Have a good one.